So Matthew chapter 3 is where we're at today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10. So would you stand please? And uh, I will begin to read our text for this morning. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region of the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Father, we praise you as the God of mercy and salvation and grace. Father, we praise you as our living and reigning King. And Father, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would grant us the gift of repentance. Father, grant us the gift of a changed heart and a changed mind and a changed life. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts to follow you. Lord, let there be no corner of our life that is in disobedience to you this morning. But God, search them out. Search out those points of disobedience, those points of error, those points of sin. And bring repentance to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. So verse 1 says, yeah, you may be seated. Verse 1 says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching. Now, let's give a little introduction to John the Baptist. John the Baptist was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth uh, in their old age. Zechariah was a priest, and he was in the temple performing his priestly service when an angel appeared to him and said, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. Now, like most folks who are in their elderly final days of, of life when they hear that they're going to have a son, Zechariah was a little bit doubtful about it, okay? And so he expressed that doubt to the angel, and he got put in timeout, okay? God does that sometimes. He said, if you're going to back talk, then you're not going to say anything. And so Zechariah was silent. He was mute. He was unable to speak for nine months. Uh, nine months, and then they had a son. His wife bore a son, named, bore a son and it was the first time Zechariah could speak at that point, and he said his name is John, and that is John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is the first prophet in 400 years. So when the Bible closes out in the Old Testament with Malachi, there is a 400-year silence. There's no Elijahs, there's no Elishas, there's no Isaiahs, there's no Jeremiahs. It's just silent for 400 years, all of them waiting for what the Bible said would happen, that a king would come. Remember in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God told David that a king would come from his line, from his family, and that king would reign forever and ever. He would set up a, a, a kingdom where they would van- he would vanquish the enemies of the king, and, and he would establish a kingdom where, where he would reign forever and ever. And so they're waiting for that Messiah, for that king to come. And so you can imagine how exciting it was, how much of a stir and a buzz there was in Jerusalem when all of a sudden here comes this 
prophet in the wilderness. He looks a lot like Elijah. He acts a lot like Elijah. His diet is on nobody's menu. His clothes are different than everybody's. His own appearance is an indictment upon comfort and and ease. And, And he speaks a lot like Elijah. And those prophets in the Old Testament, they said, before the Messiah comes, before the King of Kings come, there'll be one like Elijah who will come. And so when John appears on the scene and he begins to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You can imagine how people were stirred up. And it says in the text we just read that all Jerusalem and all Judea went out into the wilderness to hear what John had to say. Now in verse 2, his message is condensed or summarized into one statement. And that one statement is, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I want to talk to you, first of all, about the kingdom of heaven. Because you're going to hear this over and over and over and over again in the book of Matthew. So for instance, next chapter, in chapter 4, after Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, he begins his public ministry. And as he begins his public ministry, the first words out of John's mouth are in verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay? Matthew is going to talk over and over and over and over again about the kingdom of heaven. So what is the kingdom of heaven? How should you and I think about the kingdom of heaven? Because John says it's here, right? It's here. Well, when you think about the kingdom of heaven, first of all, you think about the king that was promised from the Old Testament, right? That's why it was so important when we looked at Jesus' lineage that he was born of the family of David because of that family, there's going to come a king who's going to reign, who's going to set up a new heavens and a new earth, who's going to reign forever and ever. And so they're looking for that king. And so the kingdom of heaven is the physical, tangible reign of the king of kings on the earth forever and ever. However, have you ever driven to the mountains? And when you're driving to the mountains, I've used this illustration a bunch with you guys, Around, from my house anyway, where I lived in Kansas, about between Eads and Haswell, you start to see on a clear day the outline of the mountains. But when you first see them, you know what it looks like? It looks like there's only one, right? Like it's just a blue backdrop and you can see the outline. It just looks like one mountain. But as you get closer, what do you discover? Well, it's actually several, right? And so as the people in the Old Testament looked forward, to, to all these prophecies about a coming king who's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to reign forever and ever. As they looked at all those things, they just saw one coming. That's all they saw. They just saw one. As they looked at it, they, 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 they looped it all into, all right, the Messiah, the king is going to come, and then he's going to throw off the, all the enemies of Israel, and he's going to establish Jerusalem, and, and all the nations are going to come, and all of those things are going to happen. But as we got closer and closer and closer and closer to that time, you know what we saw? There's actually two comings, right? So whenever the Old Testament talks about the coming of the king, the coming of the Messiah, some of the stuff is about the first coming, and some of the stuff is about the second coming, right? So for instance, when uh, Jesus comes, uh, John announces the kingdom of heaven is here. Now why does he do that? Because the king is there, right? Like literally, there's the king right there. I mean, John, that was John's ministry was to point to the Messiah, And so when John says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here, he's saying, look, there's the king right there. And what else he's saying is, and look at the glimpses of the kingdom. So Jesus' earthly ministry, if if any of you do our God story, Pastor Daniel teaches through this every year in uh, in our Team Kid program. You have creation, fall, flood, promises, uh, exodus, kings, prophets, incarnation, and then you have, uh, after incarnation, you have this, this square right here, and we call this kingdom. 
Now, the reason we call it kingdom is because it's the life and works of Jesus. So Jesus' three-year ministry, what did he do? Well, he healed the sick, and he fed the hungry, and he made the the lame to walk and the leper to, to be cleansed and the blind to see and the dead to be raised, right? And all of those instances, you know what those were? Those were glimpses of the kingdom. We're seeing the king who's living out what it's like to be under his reign, right? It's not here yet. Like the physical, eternal kingdom set up on earth, it's not here yet. But in Jesus' earthly ministry, we're getting glimpses of what the king is like. So, for instance, in John, in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist is in prison, and he's beginning to wonder, you know. He's, he's hearing that people are rejecting Jesus. He's hearing that there's all kinds of opposition against Jesus. And so it's, 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 it's tearing him up. And so he sends messengers to Jesus, and he says this. He said to him, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him. So you, do you hear what he's saying? Are you the king? Are you the king that's coming, or shall we look for another? Here's the way Jesus answers. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. What was Jesus? The way that Jesus answers is, don't you see these glimpses of the kingdom? This is what it's going to be like to live in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? Doesn't that stir your hope up? What's it going to be like to live in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ? Well, there's not going to be any sickness. There's not going to be any lepers. There's not going to be any, any, any lame. There's not going to be any blind. There's, there's not going to be any dead. You know, Jesus is giving us a glimpse of his power and glory as the coming king of kings. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus heals a, a demon-possessed man. So there's a demon in this guy. Jesus cast the demon out of the man. And everybody's kind of, how did you do this? How'd you do this? And here's what Jesus says in verse 28. He says, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus is saying, you're seeing the kingdom of God right now. You're seeing glimpses of it in the ministry and the work of Jesus. But yet, it's not here completely, right? All you got to do is turn on your news, okay? Turn on your news and you will realize the kingdom is not completely here, right? With this, this world is not being ruled, it's not, it's not being reigned over by the Lord Jesus Christ completely in the sense that everybody is submitted to Him. That is certainly not the case. And so, so it's here, but it's not yet. So for instance, in Luke 19, Jesus knows that people are confused about this. And so he says in verse 11, As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. See, Jesus knows. They're thinking that he's going to walk into Jerusalem. You know, he's going to bear his sword and get on his horse. He's going to go after the Romans and slay them all and throw the yoke off them and set up the kingdom in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, guys, guys, that's not happening yet. And then he tells the parable of the ten minas, which is about a man, a, a lord, who goes away on a long journey, and then he returns, and when he returns, he, you know, he sets up the kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, it's here, but it's not yet. So whenever John says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, the way that we should think about that is the kingdom is here because the king is here. The kingdom of he is here because he reigns and rules over some of your hearts. I think that's the best definition of the kingdom of God, is the rule of God over the hearts of men. If you here are here today and Jesus Christ rules over your heart, he directs you, he reigns over you, he rules you, then the kingdom of God is indeed here. It is present today and you will 
will live in that kingdom. It will be unbroken all the way into eternity. It will just be fully, more fully fulfilled when Jesus Christ comes back. Now, what should we do because the kingdom of heaven is here? So the king is here. The kingdom is here. You can be in the kingdom through connection to Jesus Christ. So what should you do? Well, John is very clear about that. John says in verse 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That word repent is going to be really important in the book of Matthew. It's going to be really important in the Gospels. Really, really important in the whole New Testament. Because the word repent is the word that tells you what to do. Your first step. It is the word that characterizes your response to the king being here. I would say it this way. Nothing else can happen in your life spiritually. Nothing else can happen in your life between you and God until repentance happens. Repentance is that gift of the Holy Spirit that opens you up to life with God. Now what does it mean to repent? Well, the root definition of repentance is to change one's mind. In other words, if you go to a Greek lexicon and you look up the word metanoia in, 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 in the Greek new lexicon, what you're going to find is the very first thing is to change one's mind. Now, I always thought, and maybe you're, you're the same, uh, I always thought of, when I, when I heard that, I thought, well, yeah, it's to change your mind against sin. Because that's kind of what it means to repent, right? So, so for instance, you, maybe you're, you're walking through your day, and you've got a bad attitude, and um, something happens, and you say something really hurtful to somebody. And no more than you say it, and you walk away, you are struck with this, why did I do that? That's terrible. I, I shouldn't have said that. That was wrong. You change your mind about it, right? That's, what, that's what always what I thought when I thought of repentance. I thought of changing your mind about sin. But actually, the more I read the New Testament, the more I am convinced that it actually, before we get to that, it means something much more important. It means to change your mind about God. You see, the root of every sin, so the root of that harsh word that was said, the word of that prideful thought, the word of selfishness, uh, or the, the, the root of selfishness, the root of all of those things, the root of any sin, immorality, whatever it is, the root of that sin is ultimately unbelief, right? Anytime that we have a sin in our life, if we trace back the root of that, it's traced back that we're not trusting God. We are not treasuring God. We are not valuing God. The root of all sin is a wrong view of God. We're not trusting, treasuring, depending upon Him as we ought to be. And so repentance is primarily a change of mind, but it's primarily a change of mind about God. That's what it is, is changing your mind about God. That's really what brings actual life transformation to a person, is when they change their mind about who God is, about what He's done, about what He will do, about what is life. It's a change of mind about God. I think back to my own personal testimony, and in May of 1990 was the first time ever I had repented of my sins. Now, I had said the sinner's prayer approximately 395,000 times, something like that, I don't know. I had said the sinner's prayer ever since I was probably Rio's age. I had sit in a church service like that, and, in, and the, the, the pastor would lead the service to an invitation, and I would pray, you know, Jesus, come into my life, you know, I'm sorry for my sin, you know. But, but I realized, the thing that I realized in May of 1990 in my bedroom at about 3 in the morning is it struck me like an arrow. You have never repented. You, you've never actually turned away from sin and self. And you've never, you've never changed your mind about God. I was bored with God. God was not significant. He was not the main thing in my life. 
And as I look back to that season of repentance in my, in my life, the, the primary characteristic of it was this. I was excited about God. For the very first time in my life, I was excited about Him. I was more excited about Him than I was new clothes. I was more excited about Him than I was ski trips. I was more excited about Him than I was a wrestling scholarship. I was more excited about Him than I was my girlfriend. I was more excited about him than anything. You know what that is? That's repentance. I changed my mind about God. And so that change of mind about God leads to a change of heart. That's what repentance is, a change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life. And a change of heart is a change in what you love. And here's the characteristic of repentant people. Repentant people don't want to sin. In fact, they hate their sin. And that's, that's, that's the next thing that happens, right? When you change your mind about God and you turn away from your sin and, and God moves in your heart, all of a sudden you don't want to sin because sin becomes distasteful to you. I remember the freedom that came during that first season of my life of repenting. When, when, and I'd never expected this. I'd always looked at Christians and I'd always just thought that they were unhappy because they couldn't do the things that I was doing, you know? And, and it never occurred to me they didn't want to. And I remember experiencing that. I remember experiencing that repentance that all of a sudden I changed my mind about God and, and that had flowed into a change of heart. You know, I, I didn't want to do that stuff. All the things that were so displeasing to God, all the things that dishonored God, all those things that had hurt other people that my life had been built upon, I didn't want them. In fact, I hated them. God had produced a change of heart in me. Well, that change of mind that leads to a change of heart ultimately led to a change of life. That's, that's what repentance is. A change of mind that leads to a change of heart that leads to a change of life. If any of those are missing, I don't think it's true repentance. You know what gets most mistaken for repentance in the Christian church, in our world? Regret. Regret. A lot of times people mistake regret for repentance. And let me tell you this morning, there are two very different things, okay? Now, I do believe that there is regret in repentance. So if, if a person is truly repentant, they will have regret. But they're different things. They're different things. Prior to my conversion, I can't tell you how many times I regretted my life. I deeply regretted it. I, I can remember times being, being just broken up that I dishonored my family, that I dishonored my father, that I dishonored my mother, that I'd broken my mother. I remember how disappointed my parents were in me and feeling a deep sense of regret over that. But it wasn't repentance. See, I, I hadn't changed my mind about God. My heart wasn't changed. I, I, I regretted shame. I regretted messing up my life. I regretted consequences. I regretted getting caught. I regretted the trouble that I was in. I regretted all of that. But that's not repentance. And, and, and if all you have is a regret over messing up your life, you do not have biblical repentance. I think you've heard of a guy named Judas in the Bible, right? He was one of Jesus' disciples. And... Um, he got increasingly disillusioned. You know why? Because he, he was one of those guys that thought what the kingdom meant, the only thing the kingdom meant was a physical reign right here in Jerusalem. 
He thought what it meant was a whole bunch of Romans getting their throats cut by the coming Messiah King, and he wanted in on that. And when he found out that that wasn't happening, Jesus was healing sick people and raising dead people and preaching a kingdom of turn the other cheek. He got really disillusioned. He started stealing money out of the money box. And then at the end of Jesus' ministry, he's the one that went to the Sanhedrin and betrayed Jesus into the hands of the officials. Do you remember what happened after that? He got his money. He got his 30 pieces of silver. You'd have think he'd have been right at the casino, right? He'd have gone straight to Watonga or somewhere, you know. He'd have gone to the car dealership or he'd have gone to a mortgage company or something, bought him a new house or property or something. But he took those 30 pieces of silver and he went back to the Sanhedrin and he said, take this. He says, I, I betrayed innocent blood. And he threw him on the ground and he walked away. Was Judas repentant? I don't think he was. I think he deeply regretted his life. I think he deeply regretted what he'd done. I think he felt incredible guilt and shame. That's not repentance. There's a guy named Esau in the Bible. You remember Esau, right? Hunter guy, really good at killing deer. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us about Esau. It says in verse 16 that, you, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. It's a warning. Like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. You remember that story? He's, out, he's the firstborn. To him is the birthright. And, and he's out hunting and he doesn't get anything that day. And he comes back and he's been out all day and he's starving. And there's Jacob cooking some stew. My wife got one of those Instapots for uh, Christmas. I'm telling you, we have eaten good. I mean, it's incredible. She made this soup. Uh, the first day had chicken in it. Uh, this didn't have anything to do with the story, but it, other than it was good soup. Um, man, it was fantastic. It was one of those, have you ever had those experiences where you just got to force yourself to stop eating? You know, it's like, quit, Jason, quit. You know, it was like that. Well, Jacob, he must have had an Instant Pot. He's cooking something like that, and it was smelled incredible. And so Esau comes in, and he's like, give me some of that. And Jacob's like, well, hey, I'll trade you your birthright for the stew. And Esau, because, because he didn't care anything about God. He didn't care anything about spiritual things. He didn't care anything about a birthright. He said, sure, trade. Listen to what it says about him. Verse 17, for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. It's Hebrews 12, 17. He found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, I, I think most people would say, whoa, 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 tears. Tears, he was repenting, right? Anybody who's, who's on the couch crying over how broken and terrible their life, they're repentant. They're not. I mean, they might be, but I'm, what I'm saying is remorse alone, regret alone, is not biblical repentance. Biblical repentance demands a change of mind about God that leads to a change of heart in what you love and what you hate that leads to a change of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this is kind of all condensed into this cool little section. And in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. All right, you following that? Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas 
Worldly grief produces death. So godly grief that, 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 that's rooted in, in, in a change of mind about God, that leads to repentance. Look in verse 11. Let, let's keep reading here. For see what earnestness this godly grief produces in you. What, what, what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. In other words, a, a true repentance, it moves you to change your life. It changes your life. That's a better way to say it. It transforms your life. It changes what you love and what you hate and what you want and what you desire, and it transforms you. A worldly grief, it, it leads only to death. Just being upset about your life is not biblical repentance. Now, this repentance that John is talking about. So John comes on the scene, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This biblical repentance naturally flowed into three particular things, okay? Number one, baptism, okay? So if you'll notice in verse 6, it says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right? Now, baptism for us as a church is uniquely identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. If you read Romans 6, verses 3 and 4, it's very clear that a Christian today in the church is baptized because what they're saying is, I've been joined to Jesus. I've been joined to Jesus' death. His death is my death. His life is my life. His resurrection will be my resurrection. We're saying, I am joined to Jesus. The old me is dead, buried. The new me is raised up, right? So our, our baptism is uniquely connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But in, in Matthew 3, Jesus has not died yet. He has not been buried yet. He has not been raised yet. And so... John's baptism really is more looking back to the Old Testament baptism. Now, what was the Old Testament baptism? Well, we don't, we don't read much about it, actually. What we know from history is that when a Jew, I'm sorry, when a Gentile, okay, someone who was not a Jew, when they, when they saw that, look, the God of Abraham is the true God. The God of the Jews is the true God. Whenever they saw that and they wanted to become a proselyte of Judaism, what they would do is they would immerse themselves as a sign of cleansing. They would immerse themselves as a sign that I was unclean and now I'm coming to the true God. I was outside the covenant and now I'm coming into the covenant. I was, I was dirty and filthy and now I'm being cleansed by the God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of the Bible. And so John's baptism is... That sort of baptism, which is really amazing because you know who's coming to John to be baptized? It's Jews. Remember? It said everybody in Jerusalem and Judea was coming. What are they saying? They're saying, we're unclean. That was a big thing for a Jew. They're saying, we're outside. We're outside. We're, we're not right with God. We, we need a sign of cleansing. We need to be cleansed to be right with God. So, so number one, it, it resulted in this public baptism. Number two, it resulted in the confession of sins. So verse 6 says, And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, whenever you truly repent, okay, whenever you repent of your sin, meaning you, you change your mind about God, which leads to a change of life, a change of heart that leads to a change of life, whenever that happens, you will find yourself confessing specific sins. Now, it, it is perfectly okay and right to, for, to have a general repentance, right? That's kind of what happens at salvation, we, we just like, okay, I'm done with all of that. I remember, I remember saying that at my conversion. I'm done with all of that, right? But you know what happened in the days and weeks after my conversion? I would run right into my sin. And you know what I'd need to do? Confess it specifically. God, this, this is not right. 
God, I'm, I'm not trusting you here. I am not walking in faith here. God, this has got to go. And, and that's exactly what happened with these folks. As they, as they began to repent, you know what happened? They began to confess their specific sins. They began to agree. That's what, that's what confession means, to agree with God. They begin to agree with God about their pride and about their, their, their words that they were speaking, about their selfishness and about their immorality. They begin to confess those things to God. And then the third thing that accompanied John's preaching of repentance is in verse 8. John commands that they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, now what's John saying here? Fruit, what's fruit? Fruit is what comes out of your life, right? Fruit's what come, fruit is what comes out of a tree, right? And, and, and in the spiritual context, fruit is what comes out of your life. And so essentially what John is saying here is that there ought to be visible evidence, visible evidence that you have repented. Your repentance, you ought to bear fruit that is consistent, that's in keeping with your repentance. If you've got a tree in your yard and you tell me it's an apple tree and I go out there and I don't see any apples, I'm not super convinced yet, you know? You know what I need to see? Apples, right? When I see apples, I'm like, yep, you're right. That's an apple tree, okay? That's what John is saying. John is saying your life should have visible evidence that you have indeed been joined to Jesus Christ through repentance. It's, it's not just a church service thing. It's not just an emotional thing. Pastor Daniel and Pastor Andrew work really hard, especially with kids. Um, kids are especially vulnerable to high kind of emotional settings. So for instance, when we go to Falls Creek, when we go to kids camp, one of the things that we're really careful to do with your kids is whenever they're being stirred and whenever they see their, their friends going forward and God moving in people's lives and people being broken over sin and they see that, they get caught up in that and, and, and they, they, they're like, yes, yes, me too. I, 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 I want to put my faith in Christ as well. And one of the things that we always tell them is awesome, awesome. We're so happy for what God is doing in your life. But then we say, you're going to know it's real. When you go back home and you go back to your, your house and you go back to being under your parents' authority and you go back to being at your school and you go back to being with your friends and you go back to the roller skating rink and to the carnival and to your sports team and to your soccer practice, when you go back there and you see fruit. I remember Addie, my second daughter, was especially worried that, am I really saved? And I, know, I knew what she wanted, to, wanted me to do. She wanted her daddy, the pastor, to tell her, Honey, you're saved. I would not do that. Greatly to her angst and emotional trauma, honestly. What I kept telling her, Honey, here's the gospel. Believe it. And, and when you believe it, you will see fruit. And I remember her coming up to me. Shortly after her conversion, she said, Dad, I see fruit. I said, That's it. That's it. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, what, what, kind of, what kind of things are fruit? Well, I'm glad you asked that because turn to Luke 3. Okay? Turn to Luke 3. So everybody, turn there in your Bible. So this will be important. So in Luke 3, what we have is a parallel passage to Matthew 3. Okay? So Matthew 3 starts out with John the Baptist Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the forerunner of the Christ. You know, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Luke 3, same thing, exact same sequence. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the forerunner of the Christ. 
But in Luke, we get a little bit more of what happened that day. Okay, so Luke tells us a little more of the story. And so what happened is, in verse 8, he says, bear fruit. This is Luke 3. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, and then in verse 10, he has some people from the crowd who come up to him. And they're like, hey, John, what does that mean? What does that look like? What should we do? Here's what he tells them. Verse 11. And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics, that's like your shirt and pants, is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, What shall we do? And he said to them, Don't extort money from anyone by threat or false accusation and be content with your wages. All right, so this is not all that it means to bear fruit, obviously, right? Like like there are times when we, you know, bearing fruit in your life is going to mean your words change, what you say changes, how encouraging you are changes, you know, your pride changes to humility, your selfishness changes to to generosity, all, all kinds of other stuff. But it's interesting to me that that John gives some practical examples here. And, and there's three things I want to point out to you. Okay, number one, this is all super practical, everyday nuts and bolts stuff, right? This is how you behave with your neighbors. This is how you behave at your job, right? Like, like John says, if you have repented, and, you, and bearing fruit's going to mean the way that you do your job is going to change. You're going to be a person of integrity and honesty in your workplace. The way that you treat your neighbors, the way that you treat the needy, the way that you, you think of your, your own weight, it's all practical stuff. Number two, notice that it's relational stuff, okay? It, it's sharing with others and not taking advantage of others and not abusing your authority and your power over others. It all has to do with others. Which tells me that when you repent, it's going to radically change how you interact with other people. And then number three, Pastor Daniel, have you ever seen this? Because I I have been reading this passage for 21 years, and I feel really silly that I have never, ever seen this. Because I never have. Yesterday was like, like, wow, never seen it. It all has to do with money. Did you notice that? Money or possessions? Let's read it again. So when John gives them the practical stuff here, he says in verse 11, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. So that's sharing your possessions. Whoever has food, same thing. Likewise, verse 12, tax collectors, he also came to be baptized. He said, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So don't collect any more money than you should. Soldiers also ask him, what should we do? And he said to them, don't extort money from anyone who, uh, by threats or false accusation. And then the final thing, be content with your pay, with your wages. I have never, ever seen that, that every one of those things deals with money. Now, why? I don't know. First question I'm asking John when I get to heaven, okay? But let me give you what I think. I don't think it's, again, because repentance doesn't change every part of our life. I think it's going to change everything else in your life as well. Why does John, why does John focus on issues with possessions and money? I think a couple reasons for that. Number one, what you value what you value is really important. What, what, you, what you love. What, we, we spend our money, the way, say, let's say it this way. The way that we spend our money represents what we value. You know, when you're thinking about changing your, your mind about God, that's going to affect what you value, what you love, what you cherish, what, what your treasure is. 
Jesus is going to talk a lot about treasure in, in the book of Matthew. So what we spend our money on represents what we value. There's probably nothing more practical than money in our lives. You know? I mean, it, 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 it touches everything. It touches our security. It touches our, uh, our, our status. It, it, it touches our significance. You know, how many of you, you feel more significant when the bank's doing well, right? When, not, not the bank, but like your money in the bank, right? Uh, your checkbook. Um, it touches our, our joy. Uh, I mean, it's, it's the whole disillusion of American Christmas is that, that money's going to make you happy. That joy's going to come about by new possessions. Man, I think John was hitting at, if you truly repent, what you love and what you value is going to drastically change. And that's going to be visibly seen by how you spend your money and how you think about money. And how, how you relate with others with money. Folks, the Christian life is a life of repenting, okay? I think it's a big mistake to think of repentance only in terms of my salvation. So I've, I've given you my testimony. So May 1990, first time ever I repented in my life. But does that mean we're done repenting? Absolutely not, okay? So let me read you a, a quote by J.I. Packer. I'm going to try to put this on social media uh, this afternoon because I want you to have it in writing, Okay? Here's what J.I. Packer said. He said, Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God. And as our knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. Okay, now let me kind of unpack what Packer just said there. He said, first of all, you don't know all of your sin. True? Like, Like, let's just think about this. Right now, you are not aware of all the ways that you sin. I, I know that because that's been happening to me for 28 years. So, so when, I, when I first came to Christ, I remember immediately being convicted of three big things in my life. They were huge lifestyle choices that I had got stuck into. And I remember immediately hating those things and beginning to attack them by the power of God, by the power of the Spirit, by the Word of God. Within about a couple months, I had those things completely out of my life. And I remember going on a backpacking trip with my pastor uh, up into the Rockies. We're gone for about seven days up in the Rockies. We were backpacking. And I remember a conversation with him where I, I said some, maybe one of the dumbest things I've ever said in my life. I said, you know, I, I pretty much got my life cleaned up, you know. And, and I thought I had, like, like, like I thought I was done. But, but what Packer said is true, is that repentance means turning from as much as you know of sin. Man, I had no idea of the depths of sin that were in this guy. I had no clue about the layers of selfishness and the layers of, of competitiveness and the layers of, of pride that were in my life. And the more that you repent, the, the bigger God shows you those things. The bigger God reveals your own self to you. And the more you see of God. And the more you see of God, the, the more you, you want to repent. And so repentance is a continual thing. Now, real quickly, let's, let's finish things up. So there's a group of people that come to John for baptism. 
uh, called the Pharisees and Sadducees. We're going to be talking a ton about these guys throughout the book of Matthew, okay? So let's just say this for now. These are the religious leaders of the day. Um, they don't like each other. The, the only time they joined together was because they hated Jesus, okay? The Pharisees are the fundamentalist guys. They're the rule makers, rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. The Sadducees, they're the liberals. Uh, they're kind of in, in cahoots with, uh, with the Romans, with the government. They're very political-minded. They're the rulers of the temple. But the commonality in both these groups is they had an outward appearance of religion, but not the inward stuff of faith in God. All right, And so these guys come to John, they come out to the wilderness, they come out to where he's baptizing, and John points at them and says, no, not you guys, not you. Now this is one of the reasons that John doesn't live very long, okay? So he's going to get executed, <laughs> he's going to get executed because he does stuff like this, all right? He, he calls people out in their sin. But so here you guys, you got people coming for this church service and he says, no, not you. Now why does he say, no, not you? He says, no, not you, because he says in verse 8, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. See, that, 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 that verse comes in the context of these Pharisees and Sadducees. In other words, he's saying your life does not visibly show that you are repentant. Now, why not? Well, look at verse 9. Here's what they were saying to themselves. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. You see, what these people were saying was, we're the good people. Hey, the good people have arrived. Yeah, all you sinners being baptized, good for you. Now the good folks are here. Now the, the religious folks are here. Now the folks in the know. Now God's people, we're, we're it. And, and John just calls them out. And he says, you're not ready to be baptized because you haven't repented. And I know you haven't repented. Because there is no fruit. There's not the visible fruit of repentance. You know, one of the things that I admire about John, but that I'm, I'm honestly a little scared of, is, is his willingness to undercut the false security of people who are not really trusting Jesus. You know, when you get a guy like John, you got usually two groups of people. You got that group of people that, that they really want to tell everybody, Who's saved and who's not? Okay? We've got to be really careful of you guys. In fact, you shouldn't want to be more like John. You're already probably too much like that, all right? But I bet most of you fall into probably the category I'd put myself in. I, I don't want to confront people on things like that. And I, and I want to be really careful about it. But one of the things I admire about John is that he clearly saw there was no visible fruit in these people's lives. And and he clearly told them, you're not in the kingdom. You're not in the kingdom. Why? Because there is not visible fruit. I, I don't see the marks of repentance on your life. That's a dangerous thing to do. I think we should be very careful in doing it. I think you should have the right relationship before you do it. I think you should be led by the Spirit before you do it. But one of the things that I think we should not do. We should not comfort ourselves with false assurance. There's a lot of times that we look at people's lives and we don't see any visible fruit of the gospel. But because they say we're good people, we've repented, we're in the kingdom, we kind of tend to leave them alone. Now, I think that's a dangerous thing to leave those folks alone. Now, I'm not saying you go up and confront them. Listen, 
I think you really got to be John the Baptist to pull off your bunch of snakes, okay? And it might end you, it might end up in you getting you killed, honestly, okay? So I'm not, I'm not saying, hey, let's go do that, all right? Are we all on the same page? I'm not, I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, is that we ought to have a biblical view of that in our own lives. So, so even for ourselves, if I don't see visible fruit in my life, I, sh- I should not claim repentance. Because with repentance, there comes visible fruit. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I think John saw the urgency of the kingdom. Look in verse 10. He says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see the image here? The image is of a, of a vineyard in Palestine, right? And as a farmer walks through his vineyard, what does he do if he finds, you know, you got all these bushes with all these grapes and, and hanging low, and then you got this one that just sticks. There's no, there's no fruit on it. What, what does he do? Well, he pulls out his axe. And if you've ever cut down something, I don't know, this is what I do anyway. I, I put my, my axe right where I want to hit, right? Right at the root. Like, that's what you do first. Right? You put it down there, and then you go back for your swing, right? And John says, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. What, what's he saying there? He's saying there's an urgency here. Like, like we, we can't just let this ride. He said, you got to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Why? Because the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. That's a heavy thing. That's a heavy thing. I don't, I don't think we want to turn into judgmental people. I'm not, I'm not proclaiming that to you. Absolutely not. Jesus was not. Jesus was a man of mercy. But I think we want to tell the truth about the gospel. I don't think we go back to people that are already deceased. Gary and I have talked about this before. Man, once someone passes, you know what? I hope. I hope in the glory of God and the work of God. I mean, that's all I can do. But when people are still living and breathing in front of me, I look for fruit. I look for that in my own life. Because fruit is the thing that bears witness that we are truly repentant people. Let's pray together. Father, I I ask you, God, just to give us a, a season here this morning that we might examine our own lives. Father, I... I think about the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139 where he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Father, we, we pray that right now. God, all across this room, we, we ask you to do that. We ask you to, to search us and to know our hearts. Father, we pray that you would, you would show us fruit, God. Enable us to look for that. God, we know that it's a gift of your Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit doing your work in us, transforming and changing us. And so, Father, we ask that you would reveal to us the fruit of the Spirit. And, God, we we repent. Father, I pray that you'd convict of sin this morning. Whenever there's sin, I pray that you would bring repentance. 
God, that we might confess our sin, that we might truly have a change of mind about you and about, about sin, and that you might transform us to become like Jesus. <coughs> Father, we ask that you would work in us. We ask it in Jesus' name.